Art of the Ronin, Volume 1 of the Ronin Trilogy. Written and produced by Travis Heerman. Voice talent by Daniel McCarville and Zeus Legion. For more information, please visit TravisHeerman.com. This novel contains violence and mature themes. Listener discretion is advised. Chapter 2. Warfare is the greatest affair of state, the basis of life and death, the way to survival or extinction. Sun Tzu, The Art of War. The tall, waspish man dabbed at his sweating forehead with a soft cloth held in a thin hand, frowning at the hot, humid air. The tavern keeper kept his establishment far too warm for Yasutoki's liking. The hubbub of the common room was only slightly muffled by the rice-paper walls of the private room where Yasutoki sat, sipping his sake. Window shutters kept out the chill spring night. The sounds of gulls had subsided with the fall of darkness, but the ceaseless rumble of the surf remained. A little fresh air would do him good, and since the man he was waiting for was late, he opened his mouth to request that a servant open the small window. The door slid open suddenly, and the smells of the sea wafted in with the man who entered. The stranger gazed down at Yasutoki with hard, slitted eyes. Then he spoke in his own barbaric tongue, without politeness or preamble. You are the one called Green Tiger? His voice was rough and uncultured. Yasutoki's nose wrinkled. This man was more uncouth than a common fisherman, and worse, he was a foreigner. Yasutoki answered him in the barbarian tongue. I am Green Tiger. Come in and shut the door. The man snorted with a wolfish smile of skepticism, but he slid the door shut behind him. I was expecting someone a bit more... a bit bigger, perhaps. Yasutoki studied the man's strange, blunt features and his long, thin mustache. His clothes were rough and simple but not ragged. At his belt he wore a short, broad-bladed sword, or perhaps a long knife in a leather scabbard. He stank of sweat and the sea, and somehow of horses. Even after a sea voyage he still smelled of the horses for which the Mongol people were infamous. The man's gaze scanned the room, flicking here and there. Finally, he settled himself on the other side of the table. Yasutoki allowed a measure of quivering into his hand as he poured warm sake into the bowl in front of the stranger, until he steadied himself with his other hand. A bit of weakness would put the barbarian at ease. He felt the stranger's taut power even across the table, like a drawn bowstring. The man took the bowl of sake and downed it in one gulp. He grimaced. I don't know if I'll ever get used to this stuff, he grunted. Perhaps when the great Khan is in charge, you people will learn to drink real liquor. Those Kuruyu dogs had better than this on the boat. Yasutoki ignored the man's uncouth words and sat back, smoothing his fine silk robes. I trust your journey was a safe one. 
the most miserable experience of my life. I dread the day I have to return. I would rather stay in hell than ride a boat back to heaven. This is a bad season for sea travel. Between bouts of vomiting, I thought I would drown, the man grumbled. Yasutoki frowned in sympathetic sorrow. What a terrible experience. The man grunted and held out his bowl. Yasutoki poured again. The great Khan has sent messages to the imperial court, has he not? The man's face grew sober. Yes. The Golden Horde's lands extend so far to the west that our empire cannot easily be crossed. We have reached the lands where the sun sets. The Khan now looks toward the rising sun, to the sea. The Khan has ordered your emperor to submit to his rule or face invasion. Our lord is direct as always, said Yasutoki. I suspected that was his intention. Has the great Khan sent me a message as well? The Mongol withdrew a bamboo tube from his tunic and placed it on the table between them. Yasutoki took the tube, pulled the waxed stopper from one end, and dumped a small scroll into his hand. He carefully unrolled the paper and read it. Allowing the Mongol to see no hint of his reaction to its contents, he rolled up the scroll again and placed it back in the tube, secreting the container within his robes. He rubbed his chin thoughtfully. The emperor and his courtiers are weak and soft. The mere thought of war with the Khan would fill them with fear. They might well consider his request. The shogunate, on the other hand, is a different story. The Hojo clan will never agree to such a demand. But is not the emperor in charge? Yasutoki shook his head. My uncouth friend, you are ignorant of Japanese politics. The Mongol stiffened as Yasutoki had intended. The emperor is our divine ruler, descended from the gods, but he has little real power. He and his court live in splendor and opulence, heedless of the lives and suffering of the people outside the palace. The emperor relies on tradition and prestige to see his will done. He laughed harshly. He is not even in charge of his own court. He is the impotent clown leading a parade of fools. Even the feeble power of the court lies in the hands of the emperor's predecessor, the retired emperor, who guides all decisions of importance in the capital from his sequestered chambers. But the real power does not lie in the capital. It resides in the shogun. The great general, said the Mongol. He had been listening intently, absorbing what he had heard with a sharp intelligence that Yasutoki had overlooked. He reminded himself not to underestimate this barbarian. His manners were rough, but his mind was sharp as a katana. Yes, you understand military power, don't you, my horse-loving friend? The only true power is military power. There can be no political power without it, said the Mongol. When the great Khan's grandsire Genghis united all the clans of the steppes, those soft Yuan emperors and their minions learned what real power was. The power of the horse and the bow and the steel thews of the men who used them. His eyes flashed fiercely and he clenched his fist. Yes, the power of the horse and the bow. The same is true here, but it wears a different face. 
We pay obeisance to the cloistered emperor while the shogun rides roughshod over our backs. A wry contemptuous smile twisted Yasutoki's lips. But even the shogun is weak. It seems that every stronghold of power in my land is merely a facade. The true power of the shogun does not lie in the hands of the shogun anymore. It is in the hands of the Hojo clan, the shogun's regents. The shogun is a mere boy, a puppet like the emperor. The Hojo sometimes allow him to believe he is in control, and sometimes, perhaps he truly is. But they make all the real decisions, and their spies are everywhere. Yasutoki realized that his voice had lost its careful neutrality, had grown fierce. He took a deep breath and composed himself, looking at the table. A change is coming. The Mongol laughed again. Yes, a change is coming, and it rides on the backs of Mongol horses. Yasutoki nodded. With regards to the Khan's demands, I am sure that nothing will happen quickly. The debate in the court and the shogunate about how to reply could take months, perhaps even years. I would welcome the Khan's rule and be done with weak, corrupt officials. It would be better for the country. The Mongol barked a laugh. You're a fine one to call others corrupt. I can hardly imagine someone more treacherous than one who betrays his own people. Yasutoki pushed down a stab of anger. Only the most corrupt can easily recognize corruption. I am certain the promise of riches beyond counting makes you all the more convinced of what is good for your country, said the Mongol. The contempt in his voice was plain. Yasutoki tried to ignore the Mongol's jibe and kept his voice steady. My reasons are my own. They do not concern a barbarian such as you, much less one who reeks of horseshit. The Mongol laughed again, a deep booming sound. So, the limp-wristed bureaucrat has a spine after all. Then his voice grew grim, and his hand rested on the hilt of his sword. You should not forget who your master is. I do not forget. I served the great Kublai Khan, not his unwashed, uncouth messenger boy. The Mongol's eyes flashed with anger, and his grip tightened around the hilt of his sword. Yasutoki kept his voice calm, slipping his hands into the sleeves of his robes. Kill me, and you will displease the great Khan. There are few men willing or able to provide the information I possess. I can provide the great Khan with the knowledge of troop strength and movements, suitable landing sites, fortifications. I can give him Hakata Bay, and with Hakata Bay as a landing point and a foothold, conquering the rest will be easy. The Mongol snarled, The great Khan would take this measly island and the entire country without your help. Perhaps he could, but the capital is far from here, and you must take not only the imperial palace, but the headquarters of the shogun. It is a dangerous gamble, but with my help, the gamble will be less risky. Of course, a lowly horse shagger like you would not understand such things. 
Why, you sniveling! The Mongol sword jumped halfway out of its scabbard. Yasutoki's right hand flicked out of his sleeve, and something silver flashed through the air, quicker than sight. The Mongol flinched and stiffened. A small needle now protruded from his throat. His eyes bulged, and a great vein emerging on his reddening forehead. He froze in mid-movement. Yasutoki stood up, a calm smirk on his thin lips. With his toe, he pushed the paralyzed man onto his back, then leaned down and plucked the needle from his throat. He leaned down and spoke into the Mongol's frozen face. The great Khan is powerful, and he does not remain so by being foolish. Fear not, barbarian dog. The poison is not fatal. You will be able to move again in a few hours. That is, after your bowels have emptied themselves into your trousers. Take this message back to Kublai Khan. He should not underestimate me or my people. Not all of us are as weak as the imperial court. I serve him by my own choosing. You may tell him that his offer is acceptable. He shall have what he desires from me. You understand, do you not, horse shagger? I can see from your eyes that you do. Then he straightened and smoothed his robes. Well then, I have spent enough time in your distasteful company and in this dismal place. He gathered his robes and turned toward the door, picking up his large basket hat and dark coat. The hat was a fine thing for moving about discreetly. It concealed his face, and the dark coat would help him blend into the night. After he had put on the hat and coat, he turned to the paralyzed man laying quietly quivering in the middle of the floor. My people feel that manners are important. Perhaps you should learn some. Good evening. As Yasutoki faded into the darkness of the city of Hakata, plans were already forming in his mind. The half-moon gleamed on the bay, broken up by the dark shapes of ships and a tangle of masts around the docks. He would send out messages and put the first parts into motion. Tomorrow, he would travel over the mountains to Dezaifu, ancient seat of this island's government, and meet an old kinsman and friend. Thank you for listening to Heart of the Ronin, Volume 1 of the Ronin Trilogy by Travis Heerman. Volume 2, Sword of the Ronin, and Volume 3, Spirit of the Ronin, are available now on your favorite audiobook platform. Please visit TravisHeerman.com, look me up on social media, or send me an email. I would love to hear what you think about the story.